a cuppa and a good chinwag? The story has real-life stories to inspire and make you smile. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the app. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Something is happening in culture and society that helps us deal with impending doom. Hello and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And in a new message, Pastor Jeff talks about our coping mechanisms, how we avoid dealing with trivial stuff or more important things like the meaning of our lives and our God relationships. In Daniel chapter 5, the new king responds to the impending invasion of a neighbouring enemy by throwing a massive party. Then I go to Daniel chapter 5, and here's what I find. I find something that illuminates this reality. In fact, I don't know if there's a better narrative anywhere that deals with what cultures do to deal with death. This is Today with Jeff Vines and our message, Yes and Amen. Welcome, everybody. Uh, We're in a series uh, where we've been asking the question, how is it that we can live a godly life in a world that is somewhat hostile uh, to our God, to Christianity? And uh, this this week, uh, I started thinking about coping mechanisms, and we all have them, right? Ways you cope with the set of unfortunate events. Um, As a matter of fact, I got a great example. Uh, My friend Rick Reed, who I often play golf with, actually beat me in a game of golf, and uh, it it was pretty devastating. And uh, I said to him, you know, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm jet lagged. I just got back last week from Kansas City, so I'm not myself. And he said, oh, that's okay, Pastor Jeff. If, if that's what you have to tell yourself to cope with being a loser, that's, uh, that's okay. I, I can deal with that. Would, would you speak? To, can you believe somebody would speak to their pastor that way? I, I've noticed in the course of uh, years with my wife in marriage that she has developed certain coping mechanisms. You can imagine how challenging it would be to be married to me. Don't say anything. And then to, to go out and have a cup of coffee and sit across the table from each other. And you know, I, I know you might find this surprising. I talk continually. And uh, I've learned over the years, she has learned to cope with this by staring directly at me, making me think she's listening, but her mind is totally somewhere else. And so we all have those coping mechanisms. My coping mechanism, I uh, when we first got married, I said, you know, honey, I, I, I know marriage is give and take. The only thing I ask is that you don't leave stuff lying around on the bed. You can put it anywhere you want, but I just don't like stuff on the bed. Because when I come home and I'm tired, I like to just jump in, you know, without having to move a bunch of stuff. And of course, that didn't change anything. So my coping mechanism has been to pretend there's nothing on the bed. I just pretend that it's totally clean, totally pure. Coping mechanisms. We all have them. And uh, some of them can be quite detrimental. Uh, A sexually abused little girl begins overeating in an attempt to make herself unattractive so that men will leave her alone. It's a coping mechanism. A young boy whose father was absent, uh, apathetic, becomes incredibly driven to prove to himself and the world that he does really matter and that he is significant and ends up usually destroying the lives of people around him. Uh, A Vietnam War vet, an Iraq veteran, Uh, who has reoccurring dreams of things that they would like to forget, turns to alcohol and drugs. It's a masking. It's a coping mechanism. Everyone develops them. 
and you have them in your life, you probably haven't pinpointed them yet. But even though we could talk a lot about those coping mechanisms of the individual, I want to turn our attention to something that, and this is one of those messages that as a pastor, you go through the week and as you study, you're learning and you're learning and then suddenly a a verse or a passage, a narrative just opens your eyes to something that you can't believe that you couldn't see before. And not only do individuals have coping mechanisms, but entire cultures have them. Entire cultures emerge out of trying to cope with the biggest question of humanity, death. How can you possibly cope with impending doom? Knowing that one day, especially if you believe there's no God, which many modern cultures do not, how do you cope with living a life with this incredibly dark cloud hanging over you that one day you're going to end, and not only that, the sun's going to burn out and it's going to end, and everything's going to come to a, just a complete finality. How on earth can you live with that cloud hanging over your head? Ernest Becker, in the book, The Denial of Death, and I bring this up again because this book was actually published in 1973, the same year that its author died. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it. He's an agnostic. He's an atheist, or at least agnostic. If he believes in God, he's not really sure that a God exists. He says this, human beings cannot live in the fullest awareness of the meaning of death. If our death is personal extinction, so that when we die, there's no continuance, nothing that survives or goes on, and the son's death is the end of civilization, then everything previous will be totally insignificant to the mass of years and years of dead time before and after, so that no one will be around to remember anything that was done. He says, if death is like this, and what amazes me about this is here is a secular atheist, basically, or at least agnostic, saying that we really can't live like this. If this is what we truly believe and this is what is, who can live in the face of that? If death is the end of all things, if death is personal extinction, if the son's death is the end of all civilization, then Basically, the reason we can't live that way is because there would be no difference, reasonable difference over X and Y, over A or B, over this or that. Helping someone across the street would be no different than pushing them down in front of a bus. Because if there's no objective point of reference, nothing really matters. Ultimate reason cannot exist in an accidental, ephemeral, temporary universe. And you can live in fantasy land all you want. But if when you die, that's it, When the sun burns out, that's it. Then nothing has meaning. You don't have any meaning. Nothing really matters. Everything is ephemeral. Everything is temporary. Everything's passing away. And here is this non-religious man saying this. Every culture, every culture is in its most essential intent a way to heroically deny our creatureliness, to deny death. We need to feel heroic We need to know that our life matters in the great scheme of things. We need to know that there is some higher meaning. So that the purpose then of Western civilization, the the purpose of every culture then, is to help us with its worldview stave off the sense that we are utterly insignificant, utterly forgettable, and utterly unsubstantial. That we just don't matter. How can any human being possibly live that way? Nobody can consistently live under that umbrella. Therefore, cultures 
emerge. Thought emerges in the search for coping mechanisms as, as it seeks to break the chains of insignificance, to stave off the sense that we are nothing but waves on the ocean, uh, footprints in the sand, smoke and dust, blood and soil. Now, the reason I begin this way is because when you come to Daniel 5, it's uncanny. It's almost like Ernest Baker had read Daniel 5, but there's a good chance he did not. Do I know with certainty? No, because he's dead and I can't ask him. But he says that something is happening in culture and society that helps us deal with impending doom. Then I go to Daniel chapter five, and here's what I find. I find something that illuminates this reality. In fact, I don't know if there's a better narrative anywhere that deals with what cultures do to deal with death. King Belshazzar is throwing a wild party, and man, it's extremely sensuous. There's food, there's wine, there's plenty of it. He brings out the girls and the concubines in the same room. He brings out his wives and his mistresses in the same place. How smart can he be? And he brings in the golden goblets that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and he starts to serve food and wine out of them. These are the trophies of conquests. But Belshazzar actually finds the key to the locker, unlocks it, takes out these, these instruments that signify uh, the superiority of the Babylonian culture, and he begins to serve food and wine out of them at this sensuous event, this party. Now, folks, I have a, I have a trophy at home. It's a golf trophy of a golf tournament I won. It's a, it's a big cup. I'm very proud of it. I'll often just pick it up and hold it and stare at it for a while to remember days gone by. But you won't find me drinking Diet Coke out of it. But here's Belshazzar. Why would he do this? Usually, Babylonian kings honored the kings of the past. So King Nebuchadnezzar, because you've been following this series, actually passed edicts that said that if you violate the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he would turn your houses into piles of rubble, and he would turn you into a pile of rubble. So laws have been passed about Yahweh, because Yahweh, to some degree, has become honored and respected in the Babylonian culture because of this relationship between Daniel and his ability to interpret the dreams of the king. So why, why does Belshazzar come and violate now Yahweh, the sacred elements? Why does he dishonor the kings of the past? Now, this is where the historical setting of the book of Daniel really helps us. We don't read this in the Bible, but we know it from history. It's not that the Bible is wrong. It's just the Bible doesn't include every detail. It's not the purpose of scripture. We know that while Belshazzar is throwing this party of profanity as he's profaning the sacred, Cyrus, the Persian military leader, just one week before this party, defeated convincingly the Babylonian army just 50 miles from the city gates. And the city of Babylon is in complete disarray because they're wondering, is king or military leader Cyrus, the Persian, going to march in and just annihilate all of us, kill women, children, animals, everything? Or is he going to send a delegation? Is there going to be terms of surrender? And maybe perhaps Babylon will just become a vassal state. So they're all running around the streets. They're all wondering about the impending doom of death. And how does King Belshazzar deal with this? He throws a party. He's hours away from annihilation and he's having a party. Why? 
Because this is the way Belshazzar is dealing with impending doom, death. And here's what's amazing. Baker, when you go back to this Pulitzer Prize winning book that is still read by millions, he gives us three ways that cultures deal with death. And all three of them are found in Daniel 5. And you don't have to look that hard. This is Today with Jeff Vines. In his message today, Pastor Jeff is exploring the coping mechanisms humans use to avoid thinking about our mortality. Some are used by the king in Daniel chapter 5. It becomes clear, though, as much as we try to find it in someone else or create it ourselves, our maker is the only provider of true meaning and purpose. Let's continue with Pastor Jeff. Baker, when you go back to this Pulitzer Prize winning book that is still read by millions, he gives us three ways that cultures deal with death. And all three of them are found in Daniel 5. And you don't have to look that hard. He says, first of all, to get past this feeling of insignificance, humanity will go out and employ the romantic solution. Now, you've heard me talk about the first one, but not the second two. The romantic solution is the belief that if I can find that one true love, all my feelings of insignificance, purposelessness, and meaninglessness will dissipate. In other words, you say, you know what? I'm disintegrating. There's no meaning in life. One of these days, I'm just going to die. The earth is going to die. How can I find meaning and purpose? Ah, I'll have romance and sex, and I'll find my one true soulmate, and that will save me from a life of meaninglessness. That's why these dating websites are multi-billion dollar business. Romance, sex, it's the God of our time. We have got to find some way to make our lives meaningful, which is why love and romance is deified in pop culture so that almost every song on the radio is about it. Sex has become the God of a goddess universe. There's even an old Hindu song. This is not something new. This goes back hundreds and hundreds of years that says this, my lover is like God. If she accepts me, my existence is utilized. Now, if you try to employ the romantic solution to giving you what you think you need in life and the thing that will save you, guess what's going to happen? Two things. Number one, no person can live up to God-like status. It's impossible. They have feet of clay. And like the statue in Daniel 2, it's only a matter of time before they crumble right before your very eyes. And number two, anyone who says marriage is the solution to all my problems has never been married. We've said this numerous times. I was at ICOM last week in Kansas City. And before I went out on the stage, they brought me back behind the curtain and I was seated beside a guy, uh, beside a a pastor by the name of Vince uh, Antonucci, fantastic pastor in Las Vegas, doing amazing work. They sat me down. His wife was between Vince and I, and I'd never met her. I'd met Vince many times. Great guy. The first thing she says to me, she says, are you married? Okay. That's an interesting conversation starter. Well, yes, I am. I got my wedding, right? Yes, I'm married. And then her next question was, How's your marriage going? Wow, that, you know, that's not something you usually hear from somebody you've never met. And because it took me by surprise, and not many questions take me by surprise anymore, but this one did, I was amazed at how honest I was. I said, I've been married 35 years. My marriage is really good, but I can't believe we made it. Now, what do you mean by that? I was caught off guard. I can't believe how ignorant I was about marriage when I got married. I I can't believe the things I did not know and how I perceived marriage. 
And how on earth my wife has stayed with me this long? I mean, most of us guys get to this point because, you know, nobody trains us how to be married before we marry you. In fact, we're trained by other men. (laughs) What do you expect? And my mother had told me that I was a gift from God and I could not understand why my wife did not understand this. I wish, I wish I was trying to be funny. I mean, see, I, I thought that I would make all my wife's dreams come true. I didn't know I would be the central figure in all of her nightmares. You see what I'm going with this? I cannot believe that we made it. And probably the reason that we did is because we have that one central thing in common, and that is commitment because of the covenant we've made with God and each other. No person can be God-like. The romantic solution to finding your hope, meaning, and significance is no solution at all. But that's exactly what Belshazzar does. In chapter 5, verse 3, it says he brings in his wives and his concubines, and they all drink out of the golden goblets. He's reminded them, I may be dying, but I got women. So when the romantic solution doesn't work, and these two are new areas or territories, we go to the creative solution. This is what most of you young people are going to do with your life, even though you won't admit it, and you may not even know it now. You're going to try to separate yourself from the herd to you. The task of your life is to show yourself and the world that you are a step above. And somehow that's going to give you meaning and significance. Your devil is mediocrity and your savior is your unique gifts that will eventually enable you to achieve immortality. You're different than everybody else. You run from the herd. You stand out. And that will give you the meaning you think of feeling substantial and attacking this impending doom that you know is hanging over your head. The problem is, if when you die, that's it, and the universe ends and that's it, then who are you to say that this is any better than that, or that this someone is better than that someone? In fact, Becker has a word for all musicians and artists. He says, who are you to bring something creative into culture and say everybody ought to notice this? With no objective point of reference, You're not going to be able to justify the meaning or purpose of your life. There's no good or bad if everything ends. There's no honorable or dishonorable. There's no worthy or unworthy when there's no objective standard by which to judge those things that you accomplish. For all you know, one could be just as bad or just as good as another. When you lock God out of a closed system, you have no objective point of reference to know what is good, what is bad, what is honorable, what is dishonorable. And the other thing is you're creaturely which means that nobody knows better than you do how it's not working. Because no matter how successful you get and how much you think you climbed the ladder, it's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough because you know in order to justify your existence, it has to come from outside yourself, not inside yourself. But if you lock God out, there's no possibility of outside justification. The second major problem is this. No matter how much you do achieve, It's never going to give worth to your soul, and your soul knows that. So you go out into the world, the romantic solution's not working. You go out, you try to make a name for yourself. You try to say, yeah, but look at me. I can do this, and I can do that. I'm different than the rest of you. And here's what happens. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, pride, real pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only gets pleasure out of having more of it than the next guy or person. You may think you're proud of being successful, intelligent, or good-looking, But when surrounded by those who are equal or better than you, you lose all pleasure in those things. It's the comparison that makes you proud. It's the comparison that you are above the rest. Now, 
There are two examples that I often use because they've had the greatest impact. Let me illustrate what Lewis is saying. Scotty Pippen was a Chicago Bull back in the late, uh, mid-90s. In the late 90s, he signed a contract to go and play for the Portland Trailblazers. So Pippen is a teammate of Michael Jordan, stardom. But Pippen came from a very poor family, and there were a lot of family members living in a very small house. But by the time he reaches 1999, he is signing, at that time, huge contract, $15 million a year for three years. $45 million then in three years. His endorsements of $50 million added to that. He was making $100 million every three years. He had a 74-foot yacht, $100,000 plus Mercedes. There was a feature article about his life in the December 13, 1999 issue of Sports Illustrated. It was titled, No Babe in the Woods. Someone had asked Scottie Pippen, what are your thoughts while you're warming up for the game? What do you think about? And the author of the article says that before every game in Portland's Rose Garden, Pippen has eyes for only one. So the game's getting ready to begin. And here's what he's thinking about. He'll let his gaze drift over to the courtside seat occupied by Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft and owner of both the Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks, a man with a personal net worth of $40 billion. Pippen looks at his employer's geeky exterior and wonders, how does he do it? Tell me how I can make a billion. I just want one of them. Tell me how I can make a billion dollars. Tell me how I can become a billionaire. Dude, you make 50 million every three years. It's not enough. And the answer is no, it's not. No amount will ever be enough. You know why? Because you're always going to meet somebody with more. And if your meaning and significance and your ability to stand out of the herd is being better in any particular area than everyone else, there's always somebody better. And when you meet them, it's going to suck the life and meaning right out of you. The more meaningful and purposeful their life is, the less meaningful and purposeful your life will be. In fact, another example is an athlete in this city that I always remain nameless. I never mentioned the name, but he was in arbitration to sign for bigger money. He was making $26 million. He had a $26 million contract. He wanted a $68 million contract. And so they go into arbitration in the offseason. He comes out with $52 million. Now think about it. He's on 26. He wants 68. He comes out with 52. They interviewed his wife after the arbitration and said, how did that make you feel? She said, this is the saddest day of our lives. When success is a means to drown out the drums of death, no amount of success will ever be enough. And what's uncanny, the more successful you become, the louder the beat of the drums. Perhaps it's your soul screaming this. You can't fill an eternal void by temporary means. So in Daniel, as the Babylonian army has been defeated and the Medes and the Persians are at the gate, how is Belshazzar dealing with death? He brings in the concubines, the romantic solution. He brings in the trophies, the conquest and creativity, the creative solution. And then he does a third thing, which is what every culture ultimately develops, the religious solution. This is what modern cultures have done, the religious solution. Thanks for joining us today for Yes and Amen. We'll finish off the message next time, so please join us then as Pastor Jeff continues to explore how God gives our souls purpose and value. From Daniel chapter 5. In the indictment that Daniel is about to place upon Belshazzar, 
is the successful way in which a culture can deal with death and meaninglessness and hopelessness. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.